Uh, now, I've, um, I've lost the um, VCR form. Has anybody got it? I'm sorry? I picked it up at the very end of class. It was right there. It's my fault. There's no way out. It's absolutely my fault. Okay, I'm going to search for it. I'm going to pray. And they found my, my, my um, credit card at uh, McCormick's Mix on Monday night. Isn't that terrific? Where's my credit card? I can't. Yeah, they found it. I'm just so stupid. It's, um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so here's the regular roster. So um, sign uh, for Monday, if you were here, uh, as well as for tonight. Uh, for, uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll say one or two things about judges arising out of the, uh, the postings. Um, Daniel, being a wise man, um, answered a number of the postings without knowing he was doing so. So that was clever. Um, let's see what. Oh, vow, vows. Um, the, the Old Testament does speak kind of equivocally about vows. Um, Hannah's vow obviously is viewed as a good thing. Uh, Jephthah obviously gets into trouble with his. Um, Saul gets in trouble with uh, a vow of his. Uh, the... Um, the, the Saul story, and by implication the Torah says this too, um, says, yeah, of course you can get out of a vow. I mean, God isn't legalistic. So many people think God is legalistic. He said to God, oh, I made a mistake with a vow. God says, oh, okay then. Um, uh, and the question is whether we've got the, the flexibility to, uh, to ask to get out of a foolish vow. Um, but, um, well, somebody said, should we not make promises to God? Well, I think you should think three times before you make a promise to God or a vow or something. Um, and Ecclesiastes warns about that, too. Um, well, is there any rhyme or reason about why God chose the people that God chose? Uh, yeah, I think there is rhyme and reason. God chooses the most unlikely people, the people who are useless. God chooses people who uh, have only got one hand, uh, or people who are foreigners, or women. Um, the kind of people that you wouldn't uh, choose are the people that God chooses. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess there's no difference except in your heart. Mm -hmm. So you're saying that Saul's that the vows, Saul's story tells us the vows are flexible. What about? Um, well, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff's stupidity is, is, in not, is in not saying to God, I shouldn't have made that vow. Will he let me off? Did he really kill her? It doesn't say. I don't know the answers to anything that the Bible doesn't know the answer to. <laughs> uh, now, a, a, lot of, a lot of people think that I do. You know, they think the professors have a kind of secret book, you know, that tells them the answer. No, I only read the same Bible as you do. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hair. 
a lot of people are puzzled about hair. <laughs> now, I'm surprised you're puzzled about hair because in 1 Corinthians 11, hair is a big deal, right? In the 1960s, hair was a big deal. It's just been revived on Broadway. Now, I don't think anybody really knows why hair is a big deal. I mean, I wasn't, you know, you should see photos of me in the 1960s. Uh, I, I don't know why hair is a big deal, but it is. And so the Nazarite vow works on the basis of part of the vow of dedication to God is not cutting your hair. Now, why that should be, it's just, it's, but it's one of, the, again, an, an example of one of those cultural things that God takes on board. And therefore, once it is a cultural thing like that that God takes on board, um, it's, you can see why it becomes the, the thing that's make or break uh, in the Samson story. Um, oh, a thing that you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway, uh, that came at the end of the Bible passage that I read. Uh, and you wouldn't know unless, tell you, unless you're really good at Hebrew. Where Hannah says, uh, when it says, Hannah named him Samuel because she said, I have asked him of the Lord. That doesn't make sense. It makes you it sounds as if the name Samuel means asked of the Lord. But it doesn't. There is a name that means asked. Does anybody know what, the, what name means asked? Shaul. The name Saul exactly means asked. Um, and so there's something kind of subtle going on there. Um, uh, what the story is, is drawing your attention to is that the, this, the, the, the birth of Samuel and, um, and Hannah's giving Samuel to the sanctuary and, and Samuel's becoming a prophet is the beginning of the story that will issue in Shaul, uh, in, in, in the one who has been asked um, by the people um, about which God is at best equivocal. Uh, I'll come back to that later on in a few minutes. What, is, what was God's plan throughout Judges? Was it, was it all to set up the monarchy? That's a good question, I thought, really. And my naughty answer is God didn't have a plan. Um, God, God, God's not big on plans, really. God's always on in kind of interaction, sorting with the next thing, taking the next step. Well, God knows where he wants to go in due course, but the stages whereby God, that God gets towards um, that are um, God's, as far as I can see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is making them up as he goes along. Um, certainly the story um, provides a kind of explanation of why the monarchy came to be necessary. Um, as it, it's explicit about that, though it, it itself, judges, is ambiguous about whether the monarchy is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, Gideon's best moment is when he says um, he won't have anything to do with being made king. Um, my, we had a children's version of um, the Gideon story that I, we used to read to our kids. That in, in, uh, it's in uh, rhyme, and the last line I always remember is Gideon's saying no to the kingship because he says, I'm not the hero. Although it seems odd, I'm not the hero. The hero is, well, you're almost as good as my kids, but not, no, you're nowhere near as good as my kids, actually. Um, because Gideon knows that kingship is a bad idea, and yet the story ends with that repetitive phrase, everybody doing what, was, uh, what they liked, because there was no king in Israel. That's the judgment of the book. And obviously lots of you hated this book, and in a sense you're quite right. To, well, you're right to hate what it's being talked about, but it's a shame if you hate that it's in the Bible because it's telling things, as Daniel was implying, about how things are. 
uh, and and pointing out that that's the kind of chaos that uh, needed needed to have something needed to have something done about. We'll come to we'll come to uh, that in a minute. Um, so somebody asked, uh, "Is Christianity a religion based on violence and death?" Apparently, Clint Eastwood doesn't like it because of, because that's true. Clint Eastwood doesn't like it for that reason. <laughs> Who's his therapist? Can he not see the link between these two things? He d I mean, and, and then he's like us. That is, he doesn't like the fact that judges talks about, if it's, or whatever it is, talks about violence because he doesn't like facing up to the fact uh, about the way we are and the way the world is. Somebody wanted more about the facts. Um, the, I assume that the basic, the basic story um, is, is factual enough. It's worth noticing when you're looking for what actually happened, how each of these incidents affects a particular area of the country um, they're, not, they're not affecting the whole country. And you can see how a, a variety of incidents that happened in different parts of the country have um, been, uh, the stories about them have been turned into a whole um, in the book as a whole. Um, I'll, I'll stay there and I'll, I'll stick there and see if, if, um, uh, if this time, come back to some of them later on. This, um, this is all interesting. Is this somebody's gift to me? I'm going to assume it probably is. Did anybody leave it here by accident? I'm going to drink it. Now you know why, I mean, why did Nehemiah pray when he was the king's cupbearer? Because <laughs> he had to taste the things before the king did. Page 39, um, inspired fact and inspired story. And I'm going on really from things I was saying about uh, working out some of the implications of what I was saying about Jericho and AI uh, earlier on. Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel uh, and the other books that we'll be looking at are part of Scripture. So they're part of the inspired and infallible Word of God. And as such, they're designed to change our thinking, change our lives, and change the way we relate to God. How do we know that they're the Word of God? In general, how do we know that things in the Old Testament are the Word of God? I think there are three sorts of reasons. One is that the believing community passed them on to us. That is, probably more or less all of us in our own experience uh, as it were, believed in the Bible and proved it to be the Word of God and so on because we've been given it by our parents or by our church communities or whatnot before we thought about it theologically. Uh, and that was true about, that's true about the history of the, the church has passed on um, the scriptures to us. Uh, a second sort of reason is Jesus gave them to us. That is, as far as we can tell, if you'd asked Jesus, excuse me, what's in the Bible, um, then what we call well, what Jews call the Torah, the prophets, and the writings is as near as we could get to 
uh, what Jesus would have um, assumed was the Bible. Um, and so that our accepting the Old Testament scriptures is part of our um, acknowledging Jesus. And then thirdly, they speak to us. People sometimes ask me, how did you come to be involved with the Old Testament? And I give, you, give them reasons, answers to that, but they're not, they're not the reason why I'm still involved with the Old Testament. It's because I find the thing keeps speaking to me all the time, opening my eyes, raising my eyebrows all the time. Um, and there isn't one of those reasons. The, 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 the reasons why we accept Scripture as Scripture, it's not a foundationalist kind of argument. There isn't a beginning, beginning point. Uh, there's a kind of web of arguments of that kind. Note, by the way, that we don't accept that these books are the Word of God because of who wrote them. And often Christians have thought that the basis for accepting the authority of biblical books was who are their human authors. But it better not be because in most cases they're anonymous. And that's a sign that that isn't actually um, the reason, though often it's something that we kind of buttress their uh, position by. What kind of thing that does God inspire? We'd expect God's revelation to be like Joseph Smith's tablets or Moses' tablets or prophecy. This is the word of the Lord. It's funny then that most scripture isn't like that. It's things like Psalms and letters and Proverbs. That is, the scriptural writings look like the ordinary human writings of the culture. But not of, not of our culture. Different sort of writings from the ones that we would have in our culture. And so they include stories. Now, out of our culture, maybe, well, for some reasons, for some of us, we'd expect stories in the Bible to be historical. And we would expect these stories to be nice. Giving us, giving us examples of peeping, people living good lives with God. That's what people think the Bible ought to be. But if the, other, if the genre of scripture in general uh, are, are, if what you have in, in scripture is great examples of the kind of writings you would have in the culture, inspired and infallible examples of the kind of writings you have in the culture, then the question you'd have to ask is, what does history look like in the kind of culture out of which the Bible came? Because the histories in the Bible then will be great examples of those histories, not great or for that matter poor examples of the kind of histories that you'd have in say 21st century California or 19th century Germany, which is often what provides the model for understanding what biblical history ought to be like. Now, there are no Middle Eastern historical works to compare Joshua and Judges and Samuel with. But there are Mediterranean works from roughly the same sort of period, well, at least from the pre-Christian period, uh, such as the works of the Greek historian Thucydides. And he brings together historical narratives, stories about things that actually happened, that is, traditional stories, stories that were told around the campfire, products of the imagination, that is, stories he makes up, and speeches he makes up in order to express the kind of thing that people would have said on an occasion like that. And evaluation, comment on the conduct of people, what, what ought to have happened, what people ought to have done, whether they did right and so on. Now if that's what a Greek history is like, you'd expect to find that that's the kind of thing that God inspired. And that is exactly what you do find. That is, 
books like Joshua and Judges and Samuel combine historical narratives and traditional stories and products of the imagination, things that writers made up, stories they made up and speeches they made up. I mean, some of those things that David says in his bedroom, was the was there somebody behind the curtain kind of writing it down as he went along? And evaluation, comments um, on whether it was right and whether it was wrong, what God made of it. Well, it's 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 at least it's it's more it's closer to the um, it, it's 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 writing that's coming out of a society which is much more like Middle East the Middle East than 21st century California. Um, that's that's its point. I'm just try if I, if you try the idea. What I'm saying is let's try that idea out and actually it works. Whereas when we start from out from 19th century assumptions as they actually are about history, we get into trouble. So let's try looking at it from somewhere else. Now, you can't always tell with Thucydides, and you can't always tell uh, with um, Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel, um, the difference, wh which are the historical narratives, and which are the traditional stories, and which are the products of the writer's imagination. Um, uh, and that's, but that's the point at which um, the fact that it's the inspired word of God is a great comfort, because it doesn't matter. Because you know that God uh, likes it as it is, so it doesn't matter so much if I can't make the distinction between the ones that happened and the ones that didn't happen. They're all there in order, to use Paul's words, uh, to provide me with um, uh, inspired material that can be edifying and train me in righteousness, turn me into somebody who's mature in Christ. There's more about that, as it says there in the, in the dictionary article on historiography. Finally, at the bottom, to be the word of God, it doesn't have to be nice. We would expect history to give us examples of people living faithful lives and to make it very clear what was their message. Joshua, Judges, and Samuel don't do that. So evidently, we have to change our views on what God would want to give us and ask why what God gave us is what God wanted to give us. How do they change our thinking, our lives, and our relationship with God? And part of the answer to why God gave us them as they are well, I've hinted at one. One is that God wants, to, wants us to face up to the reality of how things are in the world and in the people of God, which we like to hide from. Um, and another is that, uh, that God knows that when we have to think about things, we're more likely to come to a conclusion that we'll accept than if we're simply told it. That's why I am so confusing. It makes you think, and then you learn. Well, that's my excuse, anyway. That's why Jesus told parables. He told parables so that people would go away scratching their heads and, and lie in bed at night wondering what on earth he was about. And then suddenly maybe realize, and the trouble is then when they've realized it, they've got to accept it. Whereas as Jesus and everybody else, pastors and prophets and everybody finds, when you tell people straight, they don't take the blind bit of notice. Over the page to uh, where it says narrative interpretation. Where I'm uh, looking at the question, uh, given that these narratives, these, uh, these history books, aren't simply um, accounts of what happened, uh, but are 
facts turned into narrative, works that are designed to get home to people and not merely to tell you some things that happened, how do we go about approaching them? How do we go about understanding them? Uh, two senses in which we might uh, be approaching them historically. Um, the difference between history and story again. In Joshua, note the difference between the facts um, and the structuring of the story and the weight given to certain stories. So a huge amount of prominence is given to Rahab uh, and Jericho and Ai. Um, and then you're told in just, in, in, in ten verses, you can be told about ten victories or the deaths of ten kings. The, the way the story works is out of all proportion to, it isn't at all what you'd be doing if you were writing a history book. Maybe, even if for the sake of argument for a moment, it's all totally factual. But the thing to note is the way the story is told in order to give weight to certain stories because of how significant they are, I suggest. That is, the Rahab and the Jericho and the Ai stories uh, are so important uh, for the readers in terms of understanding the way in which God welcomes people from outside of Israel, who, uh, recognizing who Yahweh is and how wonderful it is that when non-Israelites when non come and recognize who Yahweh is, and how, in the Jericho story, um, God made so clear that he gave them the land. They didn't fight at all. God just gave them to it. And how, in the Ao story, uh, how, how dangerous it is uh, to appropriate to yourself things that belong to God. And then note the, the macro structure, uh, structuring of the book, which I talked a bit about on Monday. Chapters 1 to 11, with the account of them taking the land. Chapters 12 to 22 with the account of the distribution of the land that he haven't really occupied yet, and chapters 23 to 24 with Joshua's closing speeches. Number two, um, the question about the authors, the, the intentions of the author. We often reckon that the point about interpretation is, is to discover the intention of the author. What did the author intend to say? That often doesn't work very well, especially with narratives. I think it's a good question for the prophets in the sense of Isaiah and co., it's not a very good question with regard to stories. For instance, people often say that the book of Jonah is about being open to other peoples. But there's a whole lot more to the book of Jonah uh, than merely be open to other peoples. The author intend, apparently intended, well, I don't know what the author intended, but the author told a story that had got much more to it than merely the intention to get the Israelites to be more open to other peoples. What to look for in, uh, so forget the question of the author's intention. Um, with regard to the narratives. It's not, very, it's not a helpful question. What to look for then? Well, number three, look for schemes and phrases. Uh, for instance, in Judges, that, this, that cycle um, of sin and trouble and crying out and God uh, acting. Um, and the summary, the comments that Judges will make uh, like... Um, uh, the one about uh, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Look for schemes and phrases that put you on the track of what's important to the narrative. Look for the plot of the story. Um, Jonah uh, has got an introduction um, and some complications because Jonah goes the opposite direction to what he's told uh, and some resolution to the beginning. But Or, or has it? I'll put a question mark then because... 
because this, the book ends up with a question mark. Look for themes. I love Jacques Ellul's characterization of the theme that runs through Two Kings, that it's about the interaction of the human political will and God's political will. How human kings are making their decisions and how God is working God's purpose out through, sometimes through the decisions of human kings, but quite often um, despite them. Which reminds me of a question, another question, an important question that came, I think it was with regard to judges. Um, It was, along, it was about God that I had said uh, that, that only once for all did God, uh, that I, I emphasized the once for all nature of the um, story of the occupation of, of, of Palestine. Uh, but here is war, uh, violence going on, not just one, it's still going on, it's not just once for all. God, God, God is working through human uh, agents here, not just in Joshua. Um, and uh, so I need to say that, yeah, that, that's certainly true. My point was not about whether, whether I wasn't saying that God stopped working through human agents. I was saying that, that God did not make a habit of working through Israel um, by making Israel make war. What God does is utilize um, the, uh, the nations around to bring judgment upon Israel. You see a lot. And likewise in the prophets, um, although the prophets never, te never tell Israel to go and make war, they are full of comment on how the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on are God's agents um, in bringing judgment. Not because any of these people are trying to do that, but because God utilizes what human beings uh, decide to do. Um, and that's what you get running through uh, the books of Kings. Number six, characterization. Uh, look at the way in which, in which characters are, um, are described. And remember the distinction between showing and telling. Telling, is, telling means you, 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 you tell people uh, in a story, say, he was, he's a good guy, he's a bad guy. But the stories in the Old Testament are more like movies in which you can't have some, uh, you don't normally have a voiceover saying, he's a bad guy, he's a good guy. Um, that a, a movie, generally speaking, has to show rather than tell. Uh, and the narratives of the, of the Old Testament, when they tell the story of somebody like David, for the most part, uh, will show rather than tell. But sometimes they'll tell, and therefore at the moment, the moment at which, for instance, um, 2 Samuel says, but the thing that David had done was displeasing to Yahweh. That's really telling, because the story does not very often make comments like that. So when it does, then uh, you look up. Look for the showing, but also notice the telling. Look for types of character. Uh, there are simple and complex characters. People who are given, who you can sew up in a sentence. You know how when you first meet somebody, you can sum up, sum up in a sentence maybe. But when you've been married to them for 10 or 20 years, you can no longer do that somehow. The more you get to know somebody, the more complex they become. Saul and David are complex characters. Look at people playing roles, as Jesse is. Uh, look at people who are personalities. Eli only has a cameo appearance, but you can see a personality uh, coming out in his story. Look for central characters like Samuel and cameos like Hannah herself. Look for the audiences of the story. 
the Israelite audiences to begin with, um, and I talked last time about the editions of the books of Kings in the time of Josiah, in the time of the exile, and maybe when there was a hope of restoration. And ask, when people were listening to this story in those different contexts, um, how would it come home to them? How was it designed to come home to them? Look for the underlying tensions in stories. Uh, it's another thing about the Bible. We think the Bible ought to give us straightforward and simple answers to questions. But the trouble is that most of the questions um, in, in life do not, are not capable of simple, straightforward answers. You were given simple, straightforward answers, maybe by your pastor, and then you discovered they were wrong. There is no answer to the question, is the monarchy a good thing or a bad thing? Or rather, the answer is yes, or both. Um, and the genius of the story in 1 Samuel 8 to 12, as I'll say uh, uh, a little bit about it, which I'll say a little bit, a bit in a minute, is the way it brings out how the monarchy is both an act of rebellion against God and also something that God takes uh, and makes his means of seeking to achieve those things um, that the, books of, the book of Judges has made clear uh, need to be achieved. Um, there are, the underlying tensions in the story often mean that a story deconstructs. Deconstruction can sound like a bad thing, and, and in some people's hands is a bad thing, but can be a good thing in the sense that it's quite often the case that when one truth is being affirmed in a, in a part of Scripture, there's another opposite truth hiding in the shadow there. And the interesting question is the relationship between uh, the two sides to the truth. Look for underlying structures and roles being played by people in a story. A structuralism um, describes the different roles that people play in stories. Um, and uh, uh, two of the roles that people play, of which there are only a small number, are rival and helper. Jonathan, in the, jo in, in the David and Jonathan story, is both rival and helper. And that's the thing that, as it were, is tearing apart, as far as he is concerned. I'm sorry? Well, no, Jonathan is supposed to be the king. Um, you know, he's, he's Saul's son, so he's to be, he ought to be the next king. Uh, and think about modern audiences. Um, think about Joshua being read by Native Americans or by Palestinians. Um, think about judges uh, being read by men, as I said, as well as by women. Um, and sometimes uh, we, we need to safeguard against the way in which reading in the light of a modern audience uh, out of our own situation skews our reading, but we also need to be open to way in which, ways in which it sees things that are actually there. Daniel mentioned how many books have been written about uh, women in Judges um, in the past 20 or 30 years, but, th but 30 or 40 years ago there were no books about that, that, that talked about the, what happens to women in Judges. Uh, the books, of course, were all written by men, um, and they never noticed what happened to these women and judges. No, it, it, just, it just seems amazing now. How on earth could they have done that study of judges and not noticed the issues these stories raised? But they did. And therefore, in 30 years' time, what, how will people look back to us and, look at the, and see the things that we couldn't see in Scripture? They're, they're staring us in the face, but we can't see them. And so... Looking at, at these narratives through the eyes of modern readers, especially people who aren't us, uh, may enable us, may help us to see things that are there, uh, but that otherwise we'd miss. Um, okay. Uh, let's, let's give you two or three minutes to talk with each other about 
whether you think it's okay for the Bible to include fiction. Um, talk to each other about that for two or three minutes. Sure. Oh, we've got the answer then. <laughs> oh, well, that's all right. Okay. Now we'll move on. Okay, that's it. You've had enough.
Anybody want to say anything about that? I saw a hand and I heard a man. Right, we'll have the man, then we'll see the hand. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, is that the answer to the question? Oh, great, thank you. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Thank you. Yeah. God speaks through used us today. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me let let me take Jerry. Let me take Jericho as an example then, because what I'd say is that uh, that God really did. If if my the way, the, if the way I approach Jericho um, is, is, is okay, then the Israelites knew that God gave them the land. That was a fact. That was a truth. Uh, the story uh, of the conquest of Jericho is a, is a fictional, a parabolic kind of story about God giving the people the city. But it's an expression of something which is factual, that is, God giving them the land. And in that sense, it's not a lie. Um, and... Um, yeah, that's that's how that's how I'd approach that. Yeah. Um, it's hard to explain, but it's it's like the truth is here. It's up here. Yeah. And, you know, Just, yeah, and here's a dead one. Is it? I thought it was just a story. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> No, we, we don't put it in our history books. <laughs> <laughs> the Native Americans have a whole different right. take. So, so we, we come with different perspectives. So when we hear a story that is a resounding truth as possible and a parable and a narrative that, that bypasses our prejudice. Mm-hmm. You mean the nature of a story is sometimes to be able to speak to us direct without us, yeah, without it. Even if it's not quite factual, or we can't tell the facts, or the story is bigger than the facts, right. yeah, and that's and that's true about the that's true of the biblical about the biblical stories, yeah. Okay, what? Let me think. Uh, I think what I'll do is, um, I'll I'll oh no yes well blah blah. Um, now, the the homework for Monday is really difficult because you have a choice. Now I know that's you know that makes life really difficult. Um, but make sure you, you, you exercise your choice rather than you do all the things um, that are laid out in the syllabus because then you'll do too much work, right? Because you, you as it tells you on, on page 42, um, you, do, I, you, you do a study either of David or of the women in 2 Samuel. You do one or the other. Uh, I'm sorry? No, Saul was today. 
uh, page 42, uh, so where it says at the top, uh, you fill in either pages 44 and 45, which are the David pages, or 46 and 47, which are the women pages, and you post whichever you do. Um, uh, then you also do, uh, lower down, there's a, a journal article by, perhaps, that, is that what you're referring to, Jennifer? The, um, the, the article by Perdue, Is There Anyone Left of the House of Saul, um, which you can read online or you can read the hard copy in the library, and you do some work on that. So whatever, whichever your choice you do, you end up with two pages of biblical study to do, two pages of biblical, uh, notes on the biblical study, and one page of comment on the Perdue article. And then there's a similar thing uh, about, about kings where you, um, uh, where you fill in, where you read the, this, the other article, um, sorry, where you, where you fill in the, the two pages on 51 and 52, the stories about the prophets in one or two kings, and then you read the article about uh, Solomon as the philosopher king. So uh, everybody should end up with six pages to post. But with regard to the first half of the evening, you've got to choose between whether it's David or whether it's the women. Hello? Thank you. Um, thank you. Hmm, I wonder what that means. Uh, well, I shouldn't do that. Um, I don't know. I can't remember what. I've also changed it. I can't remember what had happened, so I apologize. Uh, so uh, ignore, ignore that sentence. Thanks. Thanks for pointing that out. I must make a note of that. Yeah, just ignore that thing that says uh, do the first question on page 53. You've got to, you, you've got, you've, you first, you've got to do four things altogether. You've got to do either David and the women, or either David or the women, then the Perdu article, then one and two kings, and then the Parker article. Okay? Uh, right. Now, backwards again to tonight. What I want to do is, um, I'll talk about the attitudes to monarchy, just one page back on page 41. Uh, <laughs> oh, you still got to do page fifty-three. You you you're still got to do page fifty-three. Um, uh, yes, it, it, it's simply that there isn't an opening question. I I revised page fifty-three and I didn't revise the instructions properly. Um, so sorry about that. Everybody clear now about that lock? Just give me a call, you know, anytime, middle of the night, whatever it is when you're doing it. You've got my phone number, seriously? Well, not in the middle of the night bit. Um, call me. I, I never mind being called because I like being interrupted from what I'm doing because it's more interesting to talk to you than whatever I'm doing. So feel free or send me an email if you're shy and I'll sort you out. <laughs> um, 
Okay, now, right, let's go back to page 41, the page that says at the top, Attitudes to Monarchy in 1 Samuel and Elsewhere. And, elsewhere. Uh, and I'll talk you down that sheet um, a bit, and then I'll pick up some of the questions about um, Saul and whatnot, and the evil spirit, and the medium, and things. Attitudes to Monarchy, if you like, what I'm trying to give you here is a biblical theology, or at least an Old Testament theology, well, no, it will be a biblical theology in due course, a biblical theology of monarchy, at least in the form of, uh, or the biblical material, the varied biblical materials, which illustrate, in a way, that point I was making about deconstruction. At the Exodus, um, the song of Miriam and Moses, uh, having seen God do the great thing that God does at the Red Sea, the song declares, Yahweh will be king forever. Um, and fitting with that, when Israel arrives at Sinai, uh, God describes Israel as a priestly kingdom. God is the king, they are the kingdom. When then Deuteronomy 17 uh, says, uh, well, if you'd like to have a king, uh, if, you want, if you want to appoint a king, uh, these are the conditions, it's kind of surprising that God's willing to play with the question at all. Because the uh, attitude earlier on, the attitude in Exodus, wouldn't have, would have made you think that, king, that the idea of having a king was outside the parameters. And that, uh, as a, oh, here's the line from Gideon, oh, great. Um, that's what judges, that's what the Gideon story implies. Gideon won't have anything to do with being king. Um, Yahweh is the people's ruler, for though it seems odd, I'm not the hero, the hero is God. Um, and uh, there's the great um, fable of Jotham, uh, when he's asked to, to be king, and um, he says, who'd want to be king? Wouldn't you rather be, do a worthwhile job? On the other hand, as we've seen in Judges, the, the book emphasizes what happened when Israel had got no kings. So when, when the question uh, starts arising and gets its most concentrated attention uh, in 1 Samuel, first, um, Samuel himself declares that kingship uh, constitutes a rejection of Yahweh as king and moreover it's going to be uh, it's going to mean abuse uh, for the people because whenever you've got central government um, it appropriates resources to itself it spends lots of money on things it wants to do everybody in Cong Congress has got a great health care um, insurance plan and yet uh, in chapters 9 and 10 Yahweh is the one who takes the initiative in choosing someone to rule. So it was an act of rebellion. Now God is saying, in effect, uh, okay, if you're going to have a king, uh, if you say you want a king, we'll have a king and I'll choose him. In chapter 12, um, Samuel um, revisits his conviction that kingship means a rejection of Yahweh, but declares that never, nevertheless it needn't be the end. Now, you've got um, a, a really neat, I think of it as kind of a walking, a walking around the question. Here's the question of kingship, kind of like an animal or something. And these chapters are, are walking around it and looking at it from various angles. Uh, and not giving you one answer, but giving you three or four answers to, three or four perspectives um, on kingship, on government. Uh, and, and thereby making it possible for you to, uh, to reflect on what kingship, what government, what government means in your context in terms of its advantages and its disadvantages, its dangers, 
um, its potentials and so on. 2 Samuel 7, um, the story of God's making a covenant with David involves God then making a far-reaching commitment to the king. The house of this king, David, is going to be blessed forever. You know, when you read the story in 1 and 2 Kings, um, then most of the kings justify the warnings that Samuel had given about abuse and so on. Uh, and illustrate what George Mendenhall um, described, uh, described how kingship brought about the paganization of Israel. Encouraged Israel to be in both its religion and its social life just like the pagans, just like the Canaanites. Israel was supposed to be different in both society and religion, uh, but uh, the kings made it the same. Yep. Uh, yes, thank you. Yes, yes, the economics as well. Um, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Zephaniah uh, reasserts the kingship of Yahweh, points out that the real king is among you. Zephaniah says a number of, uses that, that phrase about Yahweh as king being among you a number of times. Uh, and that fits with the kind of vision you get in Isaiah 6, for instance, of, um, of Yahweh enthroned as king. That's the content of Isaiah's, the vision that turns Isaiah into a prophet. Uh, later on in the book of Isaiah, there are more references to Yahweh being the king of Israel in a context in Isaiah 40 to 55, when there aren't any human kings. Uh, and uh, second Isaiah isn't quite saying, don't worry about the fact you haven't got a human king. <coughs> but it is saying, you do have a king, Yahweh is king. In the context um, of the kings going wrong, and of kingship being uh, terminated by the Babylonians, there emerges the promise that one day there will be uh, a king who lives up to the name, who lives up to the ideal. Um, Jeremiah 23 is a great description of that. The days are surely coming, says Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. As the idea is that um, David is like a tree, but the tree has been cut down. It hasn't quite been cut down at this particular point, but in about five minutes, uh, it is, it's about to be cut down. There will be no kings, no Davidic kings tree's gone. But Yahweh says, I can make a tree grow from a tree, that, uh, make a branch grow from a tree that's been felled. I will rise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. And it's a really wicked declaration because um, the name of the current king is Zedekiah, which means Yahweh is my righteousness, whose name uh, illustrates what the king is supposed to be, what the king is supposed to be committed to. And in effect, Jeremiah is saying, hey, you know about that Zedekiah? I'll tell you about the real Zedekiah. I'll tell you about the king who will actually embody uh, Yahweh's righteousness, who will actually, whose, um, whose reign will express the, tr the, the truth that Yahweh is our righteousness. So when kingship goes wrong, and or gets abolished, one reaction is to say, uh, but, but one day Yahweh will send you uh, a king who will live up to the vision. But the other, the other reaction is to say, good riddance to bad rubbish. 
Is that an American expression? Yes, okay, right. I've never said that before. I say these things, so they come out my lips, and I think, well, I don't know whether they'll have any clue what that means. <laughs> the other angle, then, is uh, that, that angle is expressed in Isaiah 55. It's the passage that begins, How everyone who thirsts come to the waters. Come you that have money, no money, come by and eat. Incline your ear and come to me so, so that you may live. I will make with you, the prophet is talking to the people as a whole, an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Oh, this is interesting. I will make you with you as a people. I will extend to you as a people an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Which in a way is, sim well, is simply is going back to how it was back at the beginning because the covenant was supposed to be with the whole people. The idea that there would be a special covenant with David was a bit weird, really. What, what here, what Isaiah 55 is promising is a re-establishment of how things are supposed to be with the, fo the focus is on the people rather than on the king. How will that work out? See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples, so, if I'm going to make this covenant with Yaal that I made with David, that's going to work out in the following way. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. You're going to be the means of my reaching out to the world. You're going to be my witness to the world. You, as, you all of you, uh, not, not just the king, kind of standing out and being the representative of the people, but I'm going to work through you all. <coughs> Jeremiah and Isaiah thus have two different ways of extrapolating, um, from, of moving forward from a context, from a situation where kingship hasn't worked. Um, and uh, Jeremiah is saying, God will make it work one day. And Isaiah 55 is saying, God will work with the whole people. And uh, again, you can see that there's truth uh, in both of those. My comment at the bottom, kingship is theologically inappropriate but practically necessary. It is an act of rebellion that God works with. Note how Christian history, as usual, repeats the trajectory of Israel's history. The gospel seeks to reintroduce the kingdom of priests. So 1 Peter calls the church um, a priestly kingdom. And the early church has no place for churches being headed up by one person. But that ends in chaos. So the church, is, the church has to invent what the books on early church history call the monarchical episcopate, which in our language is, means churches headed up by a senior pastor. And over nearly 2,000 years since, that has shown the capacity to control error and to encourage abuse. There's no way out of the tension of the problem. Uh, it's an issue that we have to live with. Uh, it's not the kind of issue you can simply solve. Um, and the way in which the Old Testament story in 1 Samuel and the broader story works, walks round um, what kingship, what leadership means, um, is a hugely useful theological resource to us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I want to talk, I'll, I'll, talk that in, in, I'll answer that indirectly because it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that comes out of the, um, out of a number of the uh, postings, which quite rightly uh, feel a lot of sympathy for Saul, think Saul got a bad deal. Um, and I just happened to have been reading Romans. I told you I was reading Romans, didn't I, on Monday? Well, I'm still reading Romans, and I've been reading Romans 9. I got as far as Romans 9. Romans 8's cool, but Romans 9 is cool too. Um, and, and that's really very, very helpful for a New Testament perspective on the question of what on earth God is doing with Saul. Paul's um, issue in Romans 9 is, uh, is whether it's is, is starting from this extraordinary fact that the Jewish people by and large have not recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And yet Paul also knows that actually indirectly that's led to the gospel being spread amongst the Gentiles. So, uh, and, and the, the second fact is this kind of solution to the oddness, the problem raised by the first fact. Um, the fact uh, that not all, uh, is not, that the Israelites as a whole, the Jews as a whole, have not come to acknowledge Jesus. That's only in keeping with the way that God is operating through, um, throughout Israel's story, in effect, Paul says. Not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. It is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. Not the children of flesh are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. For this is what, is pro what the promise said, about this time I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Um, Isaac would be the one through whom God works. There was nothing wrong with Israel. He was for Ish Ishmael. He was first. God just didn't choose to work through Ishmael. Something similar happened to Rebekah. She had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac. Even before they had been born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works but by his call, she was told, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written in Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. Neither in Malachi nor in Paul does that mean hatred with the kind of emotional sense. It's, it's a, a commitment and a determination to use um, that the text is talking about. But, but, uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that arbitrarily, God chose Jacob and not Esau. Esau disappears from the story. Esau and Esau's descendants disappear from the story. What are we to say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. That is, God's got a plan here. I said God hadn't got a plan. No, God has got a plan in the sense of a long-term plan, a long-term purpose. To, to bring mercy to the world. And what God is doing on the way towards that is subordinate to that purpose. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So poor old Pharaoh who gets his heart hardened and all that sort of thing and gets exposed and we laugh at him. That's not fair. Uh, but Paul says that that's all part of God's purpose um, that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Uh, is that, it's not fair, says Paul. Well, Paul doesn't say it, but he knows that we are. Um, Potter can do what he likes with the clay, says Paul. What if God, designed to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that are made for destruction, 
And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of mercy, which is prepared, hand, prepared beforehand for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now Paul doesn't there mention Saul, but he could easily have included Saul in that story. Saul is in the same position as Ishmael or Esau um, or Pharaoh. Um, Saul is somebody through whom God's purpose is being achieved by the tough experience he has to go through. And what Paul is implying and what one uh, Samuel implies is a, an attitude which is um, in great tension with, the, with an assumption that we have in our culture. That is, we think that God has to be concerned with every individual in the same way and treat them totally fairly in, in light of who they are in terms of them and their relationship with God. And the Bible doesn't take that view. Uh, in the Bible's understanding, uh, what God does with, with us is subordinate to God's big purpose. And in particular, that's true about people who kind of become God's agents. So this is really bad news for y'all. Because you, you, you probably think, that uh, most of you, the reason why you're here, is because you reckon God has called you into something. You're in trouble. Because it's not you that matters. It's God's big purpose that matters. And God may put you through all sorts of unpleasant things uh, for the sake of his big purpose. And it's kind of okay because it'll build you up, it'll do things to you, it won't stop you going to heaven, it'll, you know, but you may, you'll go through tough experiences. You may well meet Ishmael, Esau, Pharaoh and Saul in heaven. You can talk to them about their experience then. Because we need to remember that these stories are not about people and their individual relationships with God, which we tend to think is the only thing that matters. They're about this much bigger um, uh, question, this much bigger issue of the achievement of God's purpose in the world. Um, and even the fact that Saul ends up as a suicide doesn't mean you're not going to meet him in heaven. I don't know whether you are or not, but the mere fact that his story works the way that it does and that he ends up committing suicide doesn't mean you won't meet him in heaven. Um, that's, that's a totally different sort of question from the question in the story, which is indeed is a question about God working with um, this, this situation in which the people wanted to have a king um, in which that's going to be necessary, God's going to need to work through that, but in which God also needs to demonstrate um, that kingship isn't really uh, a good thing. And so Saul is a guy who it's been suggested um, is uh, the person who isn't qualified uh, to be appointed to the job that God doesn't want to have done. Uh, and that's the sadness, that's the tragedy uh, of Saul's life. Go on. Well, the story does imply that God has a more positive view of David than of Saul, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, that's, that's all I mean. Uh, but, but, uh, but um, yeah, uh, I, I think that we, we very easily set Saul and David over against each other. Saul's the bad guy. David's the good guy. Saul is the unlucky guy. David is a rogue. 
Uh, well, that's next week's. That's uh, next Monday. So we'll talk about David. Let's not get into David now. Um, okay, let's take the evil spirit. Uh, well, let's let's talk about the evil spirit. Um, it's um, first. Uh, if it if it had been the case, or it has been the case, uh, uh, when I'm cycling home, that I get knocked off my my bike uh, by a car. Um, and I go, uh, and, and and then I say, "Oh, something evil happened to me on the way home." Um, now, the Hebrew word that's used uh, for evil is a word that's, that that means bad in that sense, rather than morally. I mean, it is it is immoral the way we car drivers uh, knock people off their bikes, <laughs> but um, but it's also um, it also hurts you. Um, and the Hebrew word for the evil spirit is the word ra, uh, which means. Uh, Bad in the sense of that question: Why do bad things happen to good people? Um, the 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 things that are experientially bad um, and the things that are morally bad. Um, and so you could, so so when you read about the evil spirit, think of it as a bad spirit. Uh, now that 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 deals with some of the questions I think that people raised about: Is there something kind of how could God have anything to do with an evil spirit? Um, Indeed, you could translate that word spirit, um, you could then translate that phrase as a bad temper, which is about what Saul has got. Uh, I Because I think in the Old Testament context, there's not as much of a kind of, they don't talk much about evil spirits, uh, demons. Don't talk about, hardly at all does the Old Testament talk about demons. Um, and uh, which is interesting in the context that in the Middle Eastern world, there was quite a lot of talk about demons, but it's almost as if the Old Testament avoids that talk um, maybe because it wants to safeguard the um, sovereignty uh, of Yahweh and not imply that there are any other uh, powers around. But, the, but um, so I'm not I'm not absolutely sure whether whether to reify, that is, to turn into an actually existent thing, uh, a, a demon type figure, uh, the, what it, whatever it is that God sends to um, to Saul, uh, or whether to think of it more as like. A bad temper, a bad spirit, in that kind of sense. Um, yeah. Sorry. No, it wasn't designed to help his situation. It, it's um, it, it's it's rather like uh, it, it's it's the kind of thing uh, that Isaiah talks about, and that um, and that Jesus talks about again when he's talking about parables. Uh, when when God says uh, when Jesus says. Um, in response to the question, uh, why uh, do you talk parables? Uh, it, it, I, I talk parables in order that they may indeed look but not perceive and may indeed listen but not understand so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. Uh, it's an act of judgment to send, to send blindness on people who are already uh, behaving in blind fashion uh, is an act of judgment. Uh, and God sending the bad spirit uh, on Saul is... is uh, sort of encouraging Saul to go along the road. It's not as if Saul is a guy who is totally committed to God and then suddenly this bad, bad spirit comes. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's that Saul is already on the slide uh, and God um, uh, is incl more inclined to push him down the slide than to pull him back. Now, that doesn't mean Saul, doesn't mean Saul can't repent. Uh, some people asked. So, so, there's nothing to stop Saul repenting. People do repent. Uh, there's nothing to stop Saul doing that. Um, and then just uh, uh, the, the medium, the, the medium at Endor. Um, uh, 
the Old Testament again assumes, as the, uh, with the rest of the Middle Eastern peoples, um, that it's quite possible to make contact uh, with, uh, with, with your dead uh, relatives, friends, whatever, when you want to try to get some guidance or some help. Um, but what the Old Testament says is you mustn't do it. Um, and so Saul, uh, being in a position in which he can't get some guidance from anybody else, um, does the def desperate thing of doing what anybody else does in the culture. Um, and, and as it were, it works. Because the Old Testament always assumes that um, divination and whatnot works. It just says, don't do it. Um, but it just, there's, there's Samuel, who's been enjoying his 3,000 years rest. He's, you know, he's having a real nice time in bed. And he gets woken up. Um, and is therefore rather testy. Well, Samuel was also a bit testy, really. Um, and uh, so the story is assuming, yeah, there are such things as ghosts. You can, yeah, you can, just, yeah. Don't, don't, uh, don't say that's not possible. That's quite possible. Just so you're not supposed to do it. Um, it's 9.19. Anybody got a favorite question I haven't answered? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And I was wondering, I got the impression that maybe that that's why God got so upset and rejected Saul because he didn't listen closely at times to keeping mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Right. right. Yeah, if the king had listened to the if, if the king with a small K had listened to the king with a big K, got no problem. But the whole problem about being a king or a pastor or a leader or a government is you want to be king. You don't listen to the king with a big K. But if, it, if, if that can happen, that's, that's what you want to happen. Yeah, sure. That's right. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> so is that something we can be liberal with? The raising people from the dead to talk to them? Can you be liberal with them? No, because no, the bar was very clear. clear you, can't, you can't do that. <laughs> Yeah. Um. Uh.